Welcome to the Valarin Perspective. We explore working, leading, and finding value in an uncertain world. This is Benjamin Karsich. I'm Aaron Smith. And I'm Chris Vaughn. Thanks for listening. Let's get rolling. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to the Valarin Perspective. Today, we're really excited because we have uh, a bunch of experiential stories we want to tell within a very important context. And this is something we talk about all the time. Ben and I even just got in an argument with some guy on LinkedIn about it yesterday. Uh, the difference between being agile and doing agile. This is one of those things that apparently is becoming almost like a, a witticism. It's becoming like a, a catchphrase within the software development community. Like, are you being agile or are you doing agile? And it's sad because it's 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 referred to with growing cynicism already, which is a shame because it was a response to cynicism that already existed. So we're going to talk a little bit about what the difference is between being and doing and why it's so damn important. And we're going to tell some specific stories that illustrate people trying to do agility and not really getting the point and why I think for all of us, if this is an interest, if this is a focus area, we need to be really diligent about this stuff. So let's kick it off. Cool. Yeah. Um, one of the places we wanted to start with was a little bit of background about Aaron and I. Um, we were talking recently about how did we get into this? And there's someone we know named Ahmed um, who pioneered a lot of thought in this space. Um, but we realized like we were also sort of thinking about some of this stuff even before we met him. So we're going to go into a little bit of background um, and that'll help perhaps put you in touch with some of how now our instincts or intuitions uh, were are, are framed differently. Um, so for me, um, I, I think I originally, well, it started with frustration, um, honestly. It started with frustration. I was working in uh, government space. I was in the military. Um, and there were a lot of things that were done because they'd always been done. There were a lot of things that were done because someone told you to do them. And there wasn't, at least in the units I was in, there wasn't a lot of like, hey, I wonder if we could do this a better way. Hey, I think there might be a different way to achieve the same good outcome uh, with less time, less work. And um in the context of the military, I was a bit of an oddball because I, I was a staff officer for a lot of my four years. Um, and one thing I would often do is um, when my the soldiers in my shop were done working, I would send them home. Like, oh, you got the work done for the day? Go home. And this was very strange for, for some parts of the military because it was always like, well, no, you hang around and you find more things to do and you wait for evening formation. And like, there's all this sort of stuff that's more normal. And for me, I was like, no, they finished their work. We were deploying with some regularity, like go home, you know, enjoy time with your family or doing whatever you want to do. I don't, if you got your work done, I don't really see any need to keep you around. And that was an example to me of, of um, early on of something where I realized like, huh, I'm oriented a bit oddly um, because I'm not inventing things that, that people need to keep doing or whatever. It was just like, you got it done. Great. Um, so as I was leaving the military, and it was a very process-heavy institution, I would say, 
Um, there were a lot of things that you just had to do and a lot of forms to fill out and a lot of things they signed and all that sort of stuff. Um, I, I joined, well, actually I was interviewing at, at Riot and someone named Mark recommended I read a book called Succeeding with Agile by Mike Cohn. And it was really, for me, it was a transformative book and everybody else finds it insanely boring from what I understand. But for me, it was huge. I was like writing in the margins. It was really exciting to me. It was because it was expressing a different way of thinking about getting work done. Um, and that I would, I would sum that up in, in almost a sense of like, well, is what you're doing actually producing what you want? Uh, and is it doing that in a way that seems to be like time efficient? If not, you should do something else. Uh, and you should, you should like change what you're doing. You should shift your approach. Um, and so I read that book, got really excited about it. And then was working at Riot and started off in what would be considered like standard software development-ish type teams that were developing features for the game League of Legends. Um, but really quickly, I moved over into content development space. And so I just read this cool book and I was looking at other books to read and I was trying to like learn, okay, how do you, how, how do you lead software teams effectively? How do I take on the role of someone who's helping guide their process and whatnot? Um, and when I went over into the content development space, I really rapidly discovered that none of the books talked about anything like this. The team was completely different. It was a huge team split into these rapidly reforming groups of people that would focus on a particular piece of content. Um, Cross-functional meant something completely different. It wasn't like, yeah, I've got some engineers and some designers and some QA and maybe a business analyst or something. It was like, I have literally a dozen different disciplines. Um, and one of each of them. And there's not a lot of crossover and skill set. Sometimes there is, but like really it's not a good idea to ask a concept artist to pitch in with some engineering work um, or to ask an, an animator to, I don't know, like dive Make into particles. marketing. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So so you, you I, I ran into this thing where I was like, well, wait a minute. I still feel like there's value in all these books about software development process, um, but I can't apply the tools and the techniques directly. And so I went through a, a process, um, ha, process personally, over the, that couple of years of like trying to extract what is it about these processes that relate to how human beings collaborate um, that makes these teams, when they're using these tools and techniques, work better than teams that are not. And then how do I apply that principle inside of the context I'm in? Um, and that, I would say, was the origin of me starting to focus more on value. Or really, I would say not, not starting to. I would say that was where it started to become concrete for me about like this. This is what matters is actually is what you're doing, helping the people um, work together well, uh, learn, focus in the right direction. Um, and deliver something that's actually useful. So, so those sorts of ideas, um, that, that was sort of the origin story for me from, you know, the, the, the rigidity of the military to this sort of like, there weren't any books, there weren't any books that described how to do what I was doing. And yet I still wanted to understand how to lead well, how to help that team well, um, from the, from the process delivery side. So that's me. Yeah, and from my my perspective, I had just come fresh out of college with a commercial film degree, 
and was kind of stymied a little bit about how even that industry had uh, a very traditional frame around it. Like the way things had had been done in the past, the way you moved up, the way you networked with people, like there was a lot of rules, uh, unspoken rules, but rules in place about like how things were supposed to work and how the pecking order was supposed to be established and how work was supposed to get done. And uh, I found that I I don't think I knew what I was expecting, but I think in my mind there was a good chance that it was going to be more open, more creative, more collaborative than it was. And, you know, it's possible I was just on the wrong projects. Uh, uh, but, uh, I, I walked away from that feeling like I didn't really scratch that itch, the itch I was hoping for. And I think I didn't really understand what itch it was, to be honest, because I had worked in environments, um, interestingly enough, being exposed to video games at a young age, online video games, um, where there was a lot of collaboration and a lot of mutual support and a lot of celebrating people's individual skills and individual strengths. And so when I went to Riot, uh, someone recommended to me the book Agile Project Management with Scrum by Ken Schwaber, which is also seen as one of these incredibly dry books, which I never really understood because the whole, just the whole like approach to writing was, I'm gonna tell you about these six companies six totally different environments with different people and different problems where I went in and I approached it with this consistent set of principles, principles that I had never heard of before. And it's weird. He didn't really talk that much about Scrum. I mean, he talks a decent amount about it, but the book was not by any means a just absolutely dissected piece by piece analysis of a process. It was mostly about how he approached those teams as a leader and as what I think he would call the consummate scrum master. And I realized really quickly hearing him recount these stories that the way he approached these teams did so with a completely different set of assumptions than I'd ever seen a leader approach a group. An assumption like, hey, I'm here to serve. I'm not here to command. Hey, I believe that the people here, like I don't even know these people that well, but I believe these people here are talented and that they probably know more about what the work is and what to do than I do. And I think there was something about that that just absolutely enraptured me. And I remember looking at the book and and asking myself, holy shit, people are actually doing this? Like my, the, the, the picture of corporate America that had been painted for me when I was a kid growing up was not what I was reading in this book. And I think that that just really, and I think I associated that with Riot, justifiably so. I associated it with Mm -hmm. the people I was working with, and I associated it with the idea of agility. And I was like, I don't know much about, I don't know anything about software. I don't know anything about programming. I don't know anything about game development. I was an intern at the time. But I know that I care about what's being communicated here, and that this is important to me, and that I want to be a part of this. It was a very, uh, I, I dare say, like, like even though I'm a little hesitant to use the word spiritual experience for me, as close as I've ever got to that when it comes to my career. And I think that that was actually the unfolding of my career. And it really is about agility. Um, and But it's, a way, it's about the way I see agility now. And I started to see it then, which is it's not about the process. Like, I don't 
wake up every morning and go like, Aaron, how are you going to be a better project manager today? Like to me, being an effective project manager has always been a consequence of my embracing of those principles and that leadership ideology and that culture. And that is, I think what we really want to talk about a lot today is understanding, like really understanding what that is. Because when we work with clients and we approach companies and and when we worked at Riot, it was about building that understanding. That was always our focus. How do we build more understanding? People will Mm -hmm. figure out, people are smart. They will figure out the right things to do if you show them the right way to be. And that, and that's, that's, that's where we're going. Yeah. I think, I think that, that last, that's, that's it fundamentally. And um, even the analogy I used in that LinkedIn conversation was related to the idea of, um, you know, when I, when I talk about being agile, um, I don't think you can do agile. And, and that's not to say that if someone says like, oh yeah, we're doing agile that I have to like jump into a tirade. Like I get it that there's a, there's a meaning that that has taken on in the common vernacular and software development and wherever else, um, agile is known. So I don't need to like fight it necessarily every time I hear it, but there is this idea of, well, what is it to, if I say I'm doing agile, a question I was, well, what is agile then? How do you do it? If you're doing agile, like explain to me what it is and the steps to doing it. And what you, if, if you actually dive into that, it's less about doing at its core when you, you know, read the manifesto or whatever else, when you, when you talk to sort of the best practitioners of it, um, it's, it's like what you're describing with Ken Schwaber. It's an approach. And I've, I, that's sort of how I've described it. Cause some people don't like the word mindset and I think a mindset is a component of it, but it's an approach to work. Yeah. And I think even on the technical level, it's, I think it's important to note that when those guys came together in Snowbird in 2001, when they wrote the manifesto, they were all doing different stuff. There was, exactly. they, they were all, they were all practicing and doing different things. Their processes were they had similarities in principle and that's why they came together, but they were all the, the executing in, in different ways. And that's kind of at the core of what we're talking about. And that's that like why in the manifesto right up at the top, we, we are discovering new and better ways of doing software development. And that is the being part and the, the things that they said and people have, you know, well, are these the right things? And say, Hey, you could debate that. It's that is what the approach to work. That is the agile approach to work is these four values and these 12 principles. And none of them are a guidebook. None of them are do this, then do this, then do this. It is, hey, is your team focused more on collaborating with your customer? However, that makes sense in your environment uh, over negotiating a contract. And really, you know, and then there's the other three as well. There really it's this idea of what is it that you're focused on? How is it that you think about the job that you have? If do you think about it as I clock in, somebody tells me what to do, I do that, and then eventually I clock out and go home? Or is it I show up, I try to figure out what the highest value thing I can do today is in the context of the problem space that my team or my organization or myself that, that I'm encountering. And then I try to do that. I figure that out and then I try to do it. And that, like everything, that's where the, the iterative loops that are so common in agile processes come from, whether they're daily or weekly or bi-weekly or monthly, whatever they are. It's like, it's it, all of that intention is, 
man, am I doing something that's valuable? And you're not always going to get it right, but am I doing something valuable today? Am I doing something that's valuable to the customer? Am I doing something that's valuable in a way that I'm also learning from? Am I doing something valuable? And if I am, great. And then you get into more advanced questions is the most valuable thing you could do. Yeah. Um, but all that, all that sort of, sort of continues on. So yeah, good. It's good stuff, but it is, it's hard to understand. And I think as humans were drawn to the idea of if someone could just tell me what to do, if you could just give me the handbook so that I could do agile, then I wouldn't have to worry about all of this, trying to figure out sort of confronting the uncertainty that is present when I don't know what the most valuable thing is. And it's much easier as, as a human being to engage with a some, something and have somebody just say, do this, then do this, then do this, then do this, and not worry about, uh, is that the most valuable thing? And yeah. I'm not even going to say that that's like wrong or right or whatever. It's just not what agility is. And so agility um, has a different approach to it. Yeah, I, th I think there's also the the real task that I think we as leaders, not even just in software anymore, but in corporate America have to shift our understanding and our perspective in a pretty monumental way, Yeah, you know, and, and how hard that is, you know what I mean? We're used to handing down, you know, thought processes and practices like this from generation to generation. And now we're in an era where, you know, we can sit here and debate whether the Agile Manifesto, which was written in 2001, is outdated. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, and, and I think that, that that just shows the world we we live in and that's hard and that's a burden that I think all leaders carry that they may not understand or internalize is that, you know, you, we have all of this foundation that we were raised with and that all the, all the things we were told worked, all the principles we were told to embrace. And uh, so, so often, those things fail us now. And it's so much easier for us to just read a book and say, okay, I get this process. I'm going to do this process now. That should give me the results I want. But it's not the process that's the problem. It's the mentality. And so we want to get into some stories actually that, you know, about specific artifacts. And these are references to the scrum process. You know, the scrum has its, its sort of it's seven magical things, and, and, and this is the actual process architecture. And we want to talk about a couple of examples where we've seen the doing part in place, but the being part not in place. And the first one uh, I want to go into is about a team uh, that I saw. This is probably about a week after I joined this team, and I was in kind of observation mode. I just wanted to do an assessment so I could figure out where I would have the highest impact. So this was a large team. It was a team at the time of about probably 30 or 40, maybe a little smaller. And I walked into the team, and one of the things I observed within the daily standup was that the pieces were there. And even the three questions you're supposed to ask, what did you do yesterday? What are you going to do today? And where are you blocked? Um, these are kind of the three sort of like colloquial stand-up questions that each person in a scrum stand-up should answer. And, and there's a whole separate conversation about how overloaded that is and how that's like misses the point and other things. But they were, again, by the letter, attempting to do this as described 
in the book. And the leader of the team, uh, with an aura of command, standing in front of a group of 30 people by a TV with a project management document open, going line by line. Okay, next this person, you speak. Now, next this person, you speak. Now, next this person, you speak. And it, uh, I can only describe the flavor of it, the, the feeling in the air, uh, as, as more of an inquisition than anything collaborative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but you, but the, but again, if I were to write down what they were doing step by step, you wouldn't be able to tell that you would have to be in the room and feel the flavor of that meeting to know that something was off. And I started to realize that if you had a blocker, magical question number three, it was a scary thing to bring that up in front of 30 people. And also the cut, the, the, the return questions you were going to get from the commander were going to be painful questions for you to answer publicly, even more exacerbated by the fact that in some cases they were resultant from issues you had raised in previous standups that you were told were not important and to shut your mouth more or less. And again, I'm, I'm adding flavor to this. These words didn't appear this way in the context of the meeting, but this was the feeling. This, these were the results. This is what the people that were there were actually taking away. It was, it sounded, it, when I hear that, it just, like you said, it's, it's intimidation just to be there. And I can see this meeting where it's like, okay, 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 we have to go. Everybody knows we have to go. We have to be here. You have, have to be to ready. Be, I have to be, be ready. Yeah, I know I what I, I know what I'm going to say. They're going to say these three things so that when it's my turn, I can say it and hopefully nobody says anything. And then, whew, okay, I'm free till tomorrow. I'm, and again, so, so this, this is our first run in. With a, a with a complete fractured and, and and messed up understanding of what the purpose of that meeting is, right? So that meeting, what we've just illustrated, is a situation where that meeting can be executed perfectly from a process point of view. But there was no collaboration amongst the team. There was no like the team owns the goals. How are we going to help the team achieve their goals? Like how are they going to negotiate progress today amongst each other? How are they going to take ownership and take responsibility over progress today? Like the the leader as the servant, the facilitator of that as opposed to the commander that demands answers from everyone in the group. Like again, the difference between I'm facilitating and 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 sort of managing this meeting to make sure it goes smoothly and that and that we all show up the way we need to and I'm demanding information from you so that I can make decisions later is very subtle. It, it's not necessarily obvious on the surface. Again, you it's one of those things where you have to be there and you have to observe and you have to be able to say something's not right here. We're missing. Trust them to get the work done. You know, that's the kind of stuff that's written in the principles section of the Agile Manifesto. Trust them to get the work done. That There was no trust in that room at all. None. And that right there, again, is that's when you truly understand agility, you walk into that room and you're like, there's no trust here. Right. I think that actually, you know, some you said you mentioned trust there earlier. Um, you talked about collaboration. Yeah. Um, and 
I think there these these words when you know we we call this like the little light. You know what is what is it that's the little light that's supposed to guide you when you're in a meeting? These are things that should be present in a standup. The idea of collaboration, a feeling of trust. Even for me, when I think about it, it's this it's it's a mini alignment. It's like a mini planning meeting that helps us go like. There's a most valuable thing that we think we should be doing. And this is us working towards getting that done yeah. together. Um, and, and that does imply collaboration, implies trust, it implies direction to some extent or vision or shared vision, really. And this this move towards value. Um, and, and, it, and yeah, to that point, you can you can look at something like this and you can pretty quickly see. I mean, if you had the list of the agile principles in front of you, you're like, OK, well, that one was broken. That one was broken. That one was broken. That one was broken. Right. And 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 again, I think what we're trying to illuminate is that this being versus doing conversation is not trite. It's not semantics. It actually really matters. And again, I'm not even going to sit here and tell you that those 12 principles are absolutely unequivocally all the principles or the exact right ones you should adhere to. I, I am saying that you have to have some principles. Like embedded in your culture, you have to have something that you can be. Like we want to be honest. You, know? you do have those even if they're implicit. And actually, yeah. if you look at that meeting and you say, what were the implicit principles in this meeting? Yeah. Don't disrupt things. Make sure you have a good update ready to go when you walk into that meeting. Keep your head down. That's a really good principle. I learned that in the military yeah. too. Ob- obedience is one, honestly. Yeah. Yes. Um, do what you're told. Yeah. And, and by the way, do what you're told, keep your head down, blah, blah, blah. Like there are contexts that we're all going to encounter in life where those might be very, very helpful. If you're approaching work in an agile way, or you're, I would, I would even not say agile. I know we've, we've gone into the debate before about like, do we want to couch ourselves as agile experts? And it's like, well, we don't want to get overly looped into that because part of what we're actually focused on is the ideas of leadership and human collaboration and how do you do that most effectively. And agility happens to capture a lot of that. Yeah, and having those things be principle-based as well, principle-based leadership and principle-based exactly. teamwork and collaboration, right? Yeah. So I want to I want to jump into to the my opposite story on the stand-up because I love how it's it's almost in like the complete opposite end of the spectrum in what happened when a team thought like, okay, well, we're gonna do agile, right? We're going to, we're doing, we're doing agile. We're going to be an agile team. Got it. We're following a a rough, roughly a scrum process, but one of the core ideas, and this was actually really common at Riot and, and honestly, if things that I want to be really common, that I think this is not a bad one. Uh, but it was like this idea of, okay, we have a thing and we should constantly be like trying to change it and make it better and improving it. So they would go into stand up. And by the time I got there, this was well down the path towards like not having stand up. But they, they originally like they did stand up and they were like, hey, we don't get a lot of value out of stand up. And they asked to it's, that's a really cool thing to realize, actually, like it's a really important thing to realize. Wow, we don't get much value out of this meeting. Their conclusion was, well, if I don't get any value out of it, I shouldn't do it. For me, you know, part of that makes a lot of intuitive sense. I'm doing a process. I'm doing a thing. I'm having a meeting. Doesn't seem like it's valuable. Well, let's stop doing it. And honestly, there's a part of it like, yeah, great, good to go. Um, like that. That is a that is a logical thing that that uh, that you should do. And in this case, what that meant is like, well, let's do stand up less often. Let's do it 
only will just write each other like an, a message on Slack, which was a you know communication platform that our team had. Um, and, and we'll just write some messages like, oh, here's my daily update. Here's my daily update. And what you see in the response to the, we're not getting value out of this. And then the solution was, well, we'll do it less often and we'll just write updates. It's like, well, what did you think the standup was for? Well, we thought the standup was about giving updates. Okay, is that what the standup is for? Um, and, and I would argue no, but that was where they went. So by the time I showed up, it was, well, standups aren't valuable. We can give our updates via this and we'll all just give our updates and whatever. And I walked in and I saw a team that struggled immensely to collaborate. I saw a team that struggled immensely to stay focused on the most valuable thing. I saw a team that was in an environment that was changing rapidly and all the time, but they were sort of isolated from it. Um, and had isolated themselves from it by, by, to some extent, choosing not to engage with each other on a regular basis. Um, and when I think again about what the purpose of the standup is, I walked in that situation and I said, okay, I need to bring focus to this team. And one of the ways I'm going to approach bringing focus to this team, there are a set of things I did, is to have them in the room once a day at the same time. Um, it's funny, I didn't, I didn't have them come in and like, you know, well, these are the three questions we're going to do. And it was a different approach than that, but it was... I want us to try, and actually I, I waited a bit. I think at first I was like, okay, we'll try it your way and I'm gonna see what happens. And I'm gonna observe. And then I reflected to them what I saw happening. And I was like, I would like to try a daily standup um, again, where we, where we meet once a day. And they were open to it because I described some of what I just talked about, like some of the problems that were occurring where things were changing and people weren't aware and everybody was kind of off in their own space doing their own little rabbit hole thing. And I, I brought them back together into this meeting, but they, I remember they were really surprised because I'd run a stand up in like eight minutes and they were like, how do you, what? Cause it used to take so much longer, even all they were doing, even though all they were doing was updating each other. And I, I kept it focused. It wasn't the three questions, but it was a really quick, like walk through the, the, we had a, I think a JIRA board that we were using to track where everything was at. And it was just like, let's just walk through the board real quick and talk about where things are at. What's, what's going on? Where are we stuck? Where are we not stuck? And I facilitated that conversation and they were surprised because one, it was a short meeting. Two, it actually did seem valuable. And that came from that different base approach to, to where it was. Now I could have gone in as if I was somebody who was very focused on doing scrum properly. And I could have said, as a team, we are not doing standups correctly. We are supposed to, and I think the Scrum Handbook changed this just recently, but at the time it was, we are supposed to get into the room together and ask these three questions of each other. And so we need to do that and, and just gone in and, and, and there's an argument that people make where it's like, well, if you just do that, if everybody just does it, then eventually you figure out why it's good. And I, I, I'm not going to say that there's no truth to that. I will say, if you don't understand why the standup exists at a value principle level, it's actually very difficult to go from doing to that place of like, oh, I get it now. Like some people will go on that journey, but a lot won't. Um, a lot will just do all the steps because it's not their job. It's not. And, and again, that's even that's a framing thing where it is their job, but it's it's not how they view their job. And again, like you like you mentioned before, there are already things. It's It's not like the reason, one of the reasons that the idea of going from doing to being as some kind of natural organic transition is wrong headed, I think, is because and it's not to say you shouldn't do regularly, like that's important, right? To stretch those muscles. But one of the reasons I think pe people 
or one of the things I think people forget is that you have principles already. They're just the wrong ones. And I know yes. that that's, I know those are strong words, but like we've all been raised with certain principles, like whether we acknowledge them or not. Like one of the things I talk about a lot is through the public education system, most Americans have been taught the skills of rote memory and regurgitation of information. You know, you sit in a matrixed classroom of desks, you know, 10 wide and seven deep or whatever, or, you know, 10 wide and four deep. Or, and and you, you have a teacher speak to you and tell you stuff with maybe a little bit of discussion. And then you memorize that stuff and you take notes and then there's a test and you write the stuff back down. There's a, there's embedded authority in that. There's in, like, you know, who's in charge and who's not, you know, you know what the pecking order is. Like there's so many things there's a clear embedded right in that, that you don't even necessarily think about. And then you're thrown into this agile environment where all of a sudden everybody's supposed to be collaborating and the, the quote unquote teacher is merely a facilitator. It's like, it's all, it's totally different. The, the, the underlying ideas behind it are totally different. And if you don't have a deep understanding of what direction you want to go in, you're going to just naturally put in place your old principles in place of the, the ones you don't understand yet. That's going to be your natural reaction. We see people do yes. this all the time. That's why you see so yes. much command and control leaders, even in software. And even those command and control leaders don't often realize that they're doing that. They don't even necessarily want that outcome or want, but they right. just, it's just an instinctual place that they go when they see things not going the way they want, they feel obligated to do that. Cause that's and what I'm supposed to do as a leader, right? I, I talked a little bit about on your scenario, the principles at play were things like keep your head down, um, like obey, um, make sure you show up, give your status report. And the, the principles that were in, in my scenario were something like, we can do whatever we want with the process. Like this is about status updating like what was another one. Also, I think, and this was more subtle, it was, I am, as an individual, the entity responsible for delivering value, rather than the mm -hmm. team that I am a part of is the entity responsible for delivering value. Mm -hmm. That subtle difference mm -hmm. shifts so much. Um, and you know, you talk about that when you talk about the difference between a group of individuals or a working group or a team and all those things, but that subtle difference is in principle, like you said, is so much, and they can do all the right things. They can show up to the meeting, they can say all the things you know, ask the questions and they're going to be like, well, gosh, this is valuable. And it's like, right, because you're viewing value through the lens of what you manage to produce every day, yeah. not through, did the team deliver value? Yeah. That's a great call out because we, we saw situations in those areas where an individual would say, oh, I'm responsible for determining what's most important for the player and and producing you know, that maximum value myself, which is really good. I think in, it's a it's a it's a well-intentioned yeah. thought process, but they would actually leave their teams and take on side projects from other teams like that without any. Right. You know, without yeah. any authorization or collaboration or whatever they needed from their team, their existing team. Before doing that, because they felt that that their individual obligations supersede to the player superseded their obligation to their team, um, and and again, I think that it, what's even crazier is there is some truth to that within Riot's culture, as stated, but it missed the point. It missed the point that like you are like the, again the value creation mechanism is the team, not the individual. Right. So I wanna I wanna shift now 
we've given these two examples and they're very different. One went down like an authoritarian command and control route and one kind of moved towards what I would almost describe as like individuated chaos or something. Mm -hmm. And I want to go to like, okay, what, you know, when you're looking at this, Aaron, um, and I'll ask, I'll answer later, you know, kind of how I think about it. But like when you're looking at the idea of a stand up, a daily scrum, a, a, a 15 minute team meeting every day, whatever that is, however someone names it, what is it that you actually are thinking about and focusing on? Like, how do you understand that meeting? You when it's going well, yeah. or to, to principle, like, if you will. Yes, exactly. What will, and it's really, as opposed to like, what does it mean to do it? It's really, what are those principles that you see operating behind it? Well, let me describe a, another scenario briefly that was really good and really impressive. Um, it was a team of very senior engineers. And, and when I say senior, uh, in not just in the sense that they were very experienced programmers, but also very um, enlightened when it came to like internalizing responsibility for the customer and collaboration and working mm -hmm. together and things like that. There was about six of them. And the daily standups were actually um, quite chaotic by comparison to other things I've seen, but chaotic in the sense that it was like bubbling crackling collaboration happening between all mm -hmm. of them. It was just like, hey, you know, I uh, so I remember we talked about that refactor uh, last week. I gave that a shot. I spiked that out. It didn't work out. I think we're going to need to try another approach if we're going to hit our goals by the end of the week. And it was and it was very much like the, the, the focus of each individual in that room was was twofold. It was one. What are the goals that we set for ourselves at the beginning of the sprint? And how do we work together to accomplish those? And two, what are my obligations to you all, my peers, to help us move together as one unit over the finish line? And that was so present to where like my job as Scrum Master, uh, I actually remember it being very difficult to feel relevant in that meeting, to feel mm -hmm. valuable. Um, and I now Perfect. look back and realize that I was valuable, but I remember I struggled with that. Like again, again, my old principles telling me, Aaron, if you're not the leader, if you don't have something to say, if you don't have something to offer to this, then you're not, then you might as well just not even show up. You know what I mean? Then you're not doing your job or whatever, but that I was, that was, that was incorrect. What I had on my hands was an incredibly high-performing team. They would move the cards across the board themselves. They would make process adaptation. They would... The, I remember one of the guys being like, hey, you know, I don't really like this swim lane. It doesn't really make sense. And the rest of the team being like, yeah, yeah, we should do this. This is going to be a little more clearer in seeing what our actual progress is. And so they literally ripped it off the board that day and stand up and fixed it. Like it was like a mini two minute retrospective that they had right then and there and then adapted it seamlessly. And they were all on the same page because they were so focused on what was important. They all knew and they, and they shared in the burden and they were. Uh, one person was struggling The two of, of the other folks on the team would immediately jump in to pair program with them and help them out. And this was, again, kind of a mess from the point from any idea of like a sequential. And now we do this step and now we do that. It was just a mess. It was all over the place. But but from a principled standpoint, they were achieving all of the value that you would ever hope for from a stand up. I remember leaving those days, leaving those stand-ups and I wasn't even the one writing code and I felt pumped. They mm -hmm. were pumped. They would pump themselves up and stand up 
They were so excited to get out there and just crush the goals and, and that they had the, the, these other five guys backing them up, helping them do that. And they knew that they felt that presence and they knew that they were there for each other, that that was a pretty impressive sight to behold, especially as a junior guy in my case. Um, and that, and that, w- that to me has always been a benchmark. And I think one of the things that created that benchmark for me is the idea of, you know, it, clean process, cleanly executed sequential process is not valuable in and of itself. And I think that that was an expectation I had. Well, we now have to do this step and then that step and that the book says and it, it didn't matter. They didn't need it. They, mm-hmm. they were achieving what they needed to achieve. Yeah. And I, for me, you know, again, kind of hearing that it's, it's idea of alignment, the real sense of team. I love that you brought up that excitement, the bubbling energy and the excitement that can come from people who are, who know they're doing valuable work and are, know that, like you said, they're supported by the people around them. Um, there's an alignment function there. There was, and, and it was also that it sounds like there was trust in each other, but there was also trust that what people would bring up here was relevant. And I think that they had the power to make a decision and, and, and act on that decision, I think was important as well. Like there's a world yeah. where I could have been like, well, hey, hey guys, slow down, slow down. I'm the scrum master here. Okay. I'm running the meeting. Okay. Don't well, I got any sl- swim hey, lanes Jim, off I my get wall. that you have ideas. I get that you're full of ideas. Okay. But settle down. All right. I'm running this meeting. Like I could have done that and, and, uh, shut down their feeling of owning that problem. Like they walked into that room and they're like, whatever problems come up, we own them and we get to determine what the solutions are because we understand the target. We understand the value. And if I, and if I would have been threatened by that, I could have imposed my framework on them and that would have dissuaded them from doing that. Um, now, I mean, there's a whole separate argument. I don't think I could have done that with those guys. They probably would have run right over me um, <laughs> at that time, But which, which I love, by the way. Uh, but like the point is still there. You know, if I had been a different leader or I, my, myself had been in a different context, I could have re, uh, resorted to my own insecurities and done that. And I would have I would have robbed them of their collaborative and, and value focused team empowerment. And that would have been a criminal. Yeah. Um, but no, it happens and- all the time. It happens all the time. Absolutely. Well, like you said, it, it makes us feel valuable. Hey, wait, this yeah. is my meeting. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and man, how many times in my life, even as you bring this up, have I thought as a delivery leader, process steward or scrum master, or project manager, whatever you want to call me, that that's my board. You know, you want to rip a sw- swim lane off my board? That's what you want to do? I don't think so. We're yeah. gonna, maybe we'll talk about that in retro. Yeah. And maybe I, and maybe I, I'll put a bunch of thought into it because I'm the expert process guy here. And and the the reality that that is, at, no, that's the team's board. That's yeah. the team's a way that the team uses to work together to deliver value. Yeah, and I and I I can sympathize to a degree or empathize, oh, you know, gosh. because it's like, well, if I spent six hours making the board and they rip it up, maybe they don't even need me. Maybe like maybe they don't even need to pay me. Maybe they can just fire me, and the team right. can just handle this. You know what I mean? And that's terrifying. I think for, from a traditional principles, corporate America principles framework like that's terrifying right like i i'm out of a job you know what i mean like i don't have value here like these guys don't need me like i need to be needed because then i know i'm worth my paycheck 
it's funny. I was thinking about like equivalent roles. What is it the, the role that you actually fill in a high performing team? And I've had different words can get tossed around. And there have been times actually where teams have been performing where I realize I don't need to be there every day. That they do they do the stand up on their own. They get value out of it, and I don't need to be there um, every day. Uh, and and not that I'm saying I should use that as to be like, well, I'll just never be there, and because I I do have a responsibility to that team. But I was thinking about like what's that role? And one thing that came to mind, and this isn't a perfect analogy, um, because well, I'll talk about why in a second. Um, is a referee on a on some sort of ball game, right? You have a referee, and what's the referee doing? Well, everybody's playing the game, and there's a lot of chaos as they're playing. And the referee's there to make sure, like, a couple things. Yes, enforcement of rules, but there's a lot that's usually allowed inside of the rules. So it's enforcement of the rules, and the rules are are well understood by everybody. And, like, you know, so don't go out of them or I have to penalize you or whatever. But it's also there for safety. Hey, whoa, that's an that's you're doing something that's unsafe. Um, and that's also where I'm supposed to step in and be like, don't do that. Usually it's against the rules to do unsafe things. But, like, the, the referee's there to sort of make sure that people don't get hurt. And I think I like some of that in the in the place where you're in a high-performing team because actually the referee is to many, even though it's an important role, it's ideally completely in the background. It's an observing role. It's watching what's happening. Now, I don't like the analogy as much because I think you have a responsibility as a leader in a team environment to have a vision for what you want the future to be and to be moving towards it. Um, and so to be figuring out which of these rules make sense? Which ones don't? What do I want this to look like in the future? How do I want this team to grow? How do I encourage that through my interactions and everything like that? So I, I not I I would not take that again to the to the as like like it's a hundred percent analogous. But that is when I've been on high functioning teams, I step back into a coach or into a role of coach or mentor or referee um, far more so than sort of front of the room leader. Um, yeah. So do we want to uh, switch over to talk about retrospectives? Because this is another one of those areas where we see a lot of like, for lack of a better term, aberrant kind of non-principled behavior. Can, can I do a quick um, abstraction of sort of how I view stand up and what it's intended to do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so and I, and I really like the example you gave because I think it highlights so much of this. So when I think about then inside of an of a process based on the values and principles of agility, why is it that we meet every day? Why is it that that seems so common in so many of those? I think one, in environments where an agile process is a healthy process, you tend to see high degrees of uncertainty and change. Um, and alignment between people is in a constant state of drift. Even in 24 hours, you see drift between um, people in terms of the work that they've done, what they've learned from doing the work, and now what they think is the next most important thing to do. And so the stand-up is to some extent, it's, no, it's a continuous alignment mechanism that's helping us go, here's, here's our, our North Star, here's our vision, here's what we're trying to do. Let's move towards that. Let's move towards that together. Wait a minute, it shifted a little bit, right? Learn some new information that might change how we approach it. I want to share that with the team so we can all be together as we move towards it. And so it's this, it is a place to share information, to share learning, um, and specifically really learning about the work that's being done in the interest of achieving the value we're moving towards. 
Um, and so it's an alignment meeting. It's about sharing information. There's a huge piece of collaboration. I'm doing something and I don't know how to do it. I'm doing something and I feel like I need help. I'm doing something and I'm not going to get it done in time. Um, what do we want to do about that as a team? You know, I mean, how many times do you pull something into stand-up and in a high functioning team, you pull something into stand-up or sorry, during planning and you pull it up and stand up and someone says, hey, this is actually like we, this is part of our commitment for this sprint. Let's say if you're operating in a sprint-based environment. And I don't think I'm actually going to be able to get it done. I thought I was. I don't think I'm going to be able to get it done. And it's the most important thing in the sprint. Does your team respond by saying, got it. Well, I guess it'll go into next sprint. Or does your team say, well, that's the most important thing. That's the most important thing we committed to doing. How can we help you get that done? Do you, should we stop doing some less important things and have people shift over to help you? Sometimes that's feasible. Sometimes it's not. It should be a question that comes up when someone says the most important thing isn't going to get done. That is something that a stand-up provides an avenue for. And I want to also say that a stand-up is a place to build um, relationships with other people. Um, I think that's huge. A team kind of coming together every day is this touch point to have, you know, a, a little bit of personality um, and to develop whatever that is. Some teams that might be very robotic and logical. And if that works for them, great. Others, it may be very playful. And if that works for them, great. Um, you know, a lot of jokes, a lot of cynicism, whatever it is, I'd be careful about cynicism, but you know, like some sarcasm maybe is a better word, you know, and, and, and expressing that through, through the team coming together every day is it's a valuable thing that the standup provides. And there's, there's something there that too, that a lot of folks might find to be a nuance, but I, I don't think it is a nuance. I think it's a, a critical understanding piece, which is that every individual walks out of a standup knowing what they're working on that day is not a success. That's that the team has come together and collaboratively aligned on what's important to achieve the goals of the team is a win. And, and those, and again, it might seem subtle, but it's actually, it's, it's, it's hugely different. Like I, I, there is a tendency we have again, based on our historical conditioning to feel like, okay, there's eight people here and all of them, they have work to do, right? Okay. Therefore we're good. No, 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 no. It's actually better if we can only find work for three of those people, but that work is all right thumb on the artery of what's most important for that team to succeed. And then everyone else just figure out how you can help those three three folks. Or and again, that's that's a hypothetical scenario. But like I'm trying to illustrate the point. That's I mean I've experienced that. That's like that's not just hypothetical. Like that I've absolutely seen that happen. Yeah, it's um it's it's really 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 important I think to understand that like how do we identify the things that are most important for us to achieve our goals for the sprint? That's that is the win condition for for yes. the stand up. And, and so that, that means that when I, when I show up to a standup, in some sense, the standup is also a very useful diagnostic tool for a leader. Um, what's going on when people are, are talking and who's talking? Are only the leaders talking? Does everybody just talk when they're pointed to? I would say both of those are anti-patterns to a standup. Is it when, when somebody's talking, what is everyone else doing? Are they paying attention? And, and by the way, it's, this is something too that, that you get a lot because of how we were taught in school. 
which is like, you should be paying attention. Put your phone down, right? And it's like, yeah, there's there's some there's some part of that that's true. But another question to ask is why aren't people interested? What is it that people are actually saying? Because if you get 10 people together and they're all giving a status report, it's really boring. <laughs> well, and, and, so and it's, it doesn't impact you at all. Like if you know no. that each individual has just delegated their individual pile of work, why should you sit there and pay like super hard attention to what all nine of the other people are going to be doing in detail that like you're actually doing yourself a disservice. You've got your own work to focus on, you know, like it doesn't make yeah. sense. It's, this is just slowing you down. You're better off spending the 15 minutes in your mind thinking about the work you have, you know, you have to get done. And by the way, at some point, someone's going to call your name and you'll be like, oh, I'm doing this today. And, and other than that, why would you pay attention? And th- that's an anti-pattern. And, but it's, I mean, that one's so common. Uh, right? that, I see that thing. one all the time. Like that's probably one of the most common ones I see. And it's like, again, that that's how you know that your standup has become an individual, uh, at, like at worst, an individual status update. At best, certainly your team does not view itself as a unified collaborative body within the context of that meeting. So Right. And that, that by the way, speaks to that diagnostic function if you're a leader and you walk into that standup. Because the standup, this is the thing. The stand-up can take so many different forms and look and be effective or non-effective in most of them, but it is a reflection of the state of the team. And so when you walk in and you see everybody not caring about what anybody else is doing, I can tell you, and I've done this with multiple teams, um, I've gone in and I've observed that and I'm, I'm going like, okay, that's that's not good. Let's see if that continues. Yes, it does. Great. It wasn't like a one-off where everybody just happened to be distracted that day. I will talk to the team often in retrospective and I'll say, hey, there's more to this than just this, but this was certainly a huge piece of it. You're not a team, just so you know, because you don't care about what each other are doing. I mean, you sort of like, oh, I I care about, but it's like, no, you're not helping each other. You're not collaborating. You're not sharing goals. You're not moving towards the same value. What you are is you're a group of people or a working group, perhaps, who have slightly related work and a shared leadership layer above you. And so you come together and you talk and nobody really cares what anybody else says that much, unless if it impacts them. And then they're sort of like, well, hang on, don't negatively impact my work. Instead of being able to say, oh, this is all our work. And what does it mean for us to do it successfully together? Um, yeah. So I think anyway, that, that probably covers, I think we're good to move on to, to retro now. And actually, do you want, I can, I can kick off into that one. Go for it, man. Um, so I went to, I was in an R&D space and I went to a team. Um, it was a large team by, it was a content creation team. So there were a lot of disciplines and there were multiple of each discipline. So it was, I think it was like 25 or 30 people. Um, I was not on the team. I was a, a leader of the group that the team was within. And I was showing up to sort of get a sense of like, okay, cool. How are these going? How are they run? What's going on? Um, there had been some things raised about the team. And so I was just like digging into it a little bit. And when I arrived, um, the meeting kicks off and there was a, a leader of the team sitting at a keyboard, opening a Google doc. By the way, I have run many standups myself sitting at the keyboard, running a Google doc. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with this, but I will say Based on what I saw, I was already a little bit concerned, which was half people had phones out. This is a retrospective, like this is an hour long meeting. 
that they've scheduled. They do this every two weeks or something like that. I can't, I don't remember the exact cadence. Uh, and, and I had this person sitting up front and they start typing up, okay, retro number, blah, blah, blah. Here's the blah, blah, blah. And then they were, were saying, okay, well, what topics do people have? And it was very quiet. People didn't have much to say, but the leaders of the team did. And the leaders were like, well, I've seen this issue or I've seen this issue and would occasionally sort of ask something of someone in the room who was often sitting back completely disengaged on their phone. And then they would write notes and they were just sort of recording the, the almost the minutes of the retrospective as it went, that person at the keyboard. And so at the end, as the team largely does not say anything, but the leaders say quite a bit, it's almost like the leaders are having a conversation about how the team's going and the team is just there to observe was almost the feeling I got. Um, as, as that happened, um, and we got towards the end, it was like, well, which of these things do we want to work on? And a bunch of them were selected. And then it was like, well, we'll assign these out to different people to try to resolve in these next two weeks. And I was looking at the items and I was like, these are not actually, a bunch of them weren't team items. They were, because I mean, the team wasn't really saying much. They were things that the leadership had seen that the leadership was like, maybe we could do this a little better. Maybe we could do this a little better or whatever. Um, then the leaders all assigned each other the action items from the retrospective. And they were just like, well, you do this one and you do this one and you do this one. And then they were like, okay, cool. Does anybody have anything else? And I was sort of like, does anybody have anything, honestly, that's not a lead on this team? Uh, and then they, they stood up and walked away. What's fascinating is as I describe that, I describe it from a very negative lens because my experience of that meeting was like, this is not good. But in so many ways, the steps, to come back to that, your first example around stand-up, the steps were all correct. We had a facilitator. We had some a way to record what was said. We had um, action items being taken and assigned to people. Um, we had the team all present, like the, everybody was there. We had questions being asked to the room. We and encourage it seemed you you could say um, that the questions were ones that seemed designed to encourage participation, even though that didn't happen. <laughs> Um, like you could look at it and you could say like, that was a very by the book retro that was done. And yet I walked away going like, this team is in trouble. They don't have a good way to evaluate how they're doing. Because if this, this is the mechanism for that and they don't do it. Um, and, and so for me, yeah, that was, that was sort of the, the experience I had. And, and I, I, I loved how you described the feel and there was this feel of this is a waste of time. I have to be here. I don't care about this. This is not valuable. This doesn't provide me anything. It's not useful. It's just a way for some people on the team, particularly the leaders in this in this particular example, to, to talk. Uh, and I'm trapped. Yeah. I'm trapped here for this hour. Yeah, and it, I think it's worth noting that that, that pattern of we adopt a new process, we apply our old principles, the ones that mm -hmm. weren't working to the new process. We sort of twist, contort, and, and sort of bastardize the process into something that it, it was never intended to be. And then it fails us inevitably. And then we get cynical about it. And we go, ah, oh, this sucked. It was just another new process and it, and it 
was just like the old one and it sucked and and we see this a lot and it and it and it yeah. really it, it's I, I feel for so many teams and so many leaders that are caught in this loop out there. I know I've been caught in this loop. I mean I, I know when I was uh, a wee lad trying to figure this stuff out in the very beginning of my career and I was dealing with some very smart engineers and I just struggled to explain the why. I struggled to explain the principles in a way. Mm-hmm. I just I just wasn't mature enough to be able to do that effectively. It was frustrating for them and it was frustrating for me. You know what I mean? It was, it was a faith-based process. And when things wouldn't work out, we would all struggle trying to figure out what was going on. And it, it's, it's, it's such, this is why it's so important to really understand the principle and invest time into that and, and invest time into building real understanding and real deliberate culture. Uh, because your process, again, is always going to be an offshoot of that. Like you, you will be able yeah. to ruin any process that's built on a shoddy foundation, period. Right. Yeah. And I, I love the word you called out cynicism um, because that's actually so common in when, when the principles are not correct, but you're doing the right, you're doing the right things or so it seems, it leads to cynicism because like you said, this was going to be helpful. This was supposed to be a good meeting. You had books and you had information and blah, blah, blah. And you brought all that. And you know what? This is useless. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and then it eventually becomes now we all just shut our mouths and go to this meeting every day that we know we're supposed to go to. And we all know in our hearts, souls, minds, and bones that it adds no value whatsoever. We all know it. Yes. And that, that, that toxin just gets into the bloodstream. That just, that, that right there, if, if I, if I just had to like capture that, I'd be like, that is one of the (laughs) unequivocally shittiest aspects of corporate culture is when you're like in that place where you're like, I'm about to go to this meeting for an hour that will, I know, I know because I've seen it will add no value to my day at all. Like you do, you get a, you stack enough of those up for anybody and it starts to, it just eats away at you. It's, <laughs> you know? it's funny, it's the same thing of um, the idea of cynicism and resentment. Yeah. It's very possible to be resentful of the world and cynical about anything that's going on. It's not healthy to do so. Um, it, it doesn't help you very much, but it's a coping mechanism that we have. And when you see that in people in a, in a stand-up or a retro or wherever else, um, I guess maybe my my advice would be if you see cynicism and resentment, it's worth exploring why. Why are people cynical? Why are people resentful? If you find out nobody thinks it's valuable, find out what what do you want to get out of it? What's the value that you would see? Here's the value I might see. And if you find yourself in a meeting and are cynical and resentful, don't let that sit because eventually you're going to just completely disengage and you won't even realize how much of your day is spent completely disengaged as you have passed beyond cynicism. You've, you've transcended cynicism and resentment into complete and utter lack of care. Yeah. And by, and by the way, when people get into that mode, if you do go in and ask questions like that, there's a chance that you might be perceived as rocking the boat. Have the courage to rock the damn boat. I, yes, it's, it's it needs good. it. They, you might actually piss some people off, but have the courage to rock the boat because the, you only have one life to live on this earth. Don't spend it in meetings that you hate. <laughs> Let that add no value. Please trust yes. me. I've done it for 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 way too much of my career, and I think there's a lot of people out there who can 
who, who resonate with that. So I want to, I want to give another example uh, from a retrospective point yeah. of view. And this is another common pattern that I see with retros. Um, these specific teams I uh, have in mind is for core technology teams when it comes to like payments processing and monetization and stuff like that. Um, running into problems where uh, the retros were very dry and boring and like no one really liked them. And there was this kind of feeling like the retros are something Aaron wants us to do. Like it's like important part of his scrum process. But like really if we could all just black bag him and throw him off a bridge somewhere and not go to these anymore, that would be great. And and I, and I, I struggled to really – wrap my head around why at the time now, I, but I, I eventually got a clear picture why now I can I can see it clearly in retrospect. Uh, it actually came down to a a challenge that I had and, and not, not a, a malicious or sort of like um, an interpersonal problem, but like a pressure on the product management organization to be rapidly delivering uh, based on uh, kind of ever-growing needs from the stakeholders, and and at the and and I can I can look back now and see that as a team leader, particularly a product leader, if you were even keeping pace with the demand of your customers, like you were you were seen as pretty high performing, like you were beloved, you were in good shape. But that didn't leave a whole lot of room for like, hey, the team says we need to rebuild this core piece of technology that's really falling apart. And it's taxing us severely every single sprint that we continue going on without addressing this. This was not a sexy thing to focus on as a product manager because this was probably something you were going to have to go to your stakeholders and like outline to them. And they're not necessarily technical people. They didn't necessarily get it. It just overall was not a place you wanted to really be. It wasn't hot. It wasn't cool. It wasn't like easy. And so it was easy to just kind of store this stuff up in a box somewhere and leave it in a dusty closet. Now, that in and of itself isn't the problem I'm trying to dig into. The problem I'm trying to dig into is that, once again, the principle of trusting the team to self-organize and collaborate, right? Not just, hey, we're going to have a meeting where you guys get to talk about the stuff you think we should improve about the process and technology. It's like, no. And there's a critical and there, we're going to support you in doing something about it. Because exactly. if we don't do that, that one part, and this, it's insane how many times I see retrospectives where the team's coming up with all these awesome ideas about ways they can improve things. And then the leaders package that all up into a nice stack and say, thank you for your contribution and essentially put it into the paper shredder. And I'm like, you only get two or three of those mulligans before the team's going to start going into those meetings and being like, this is a waste of time. Why are we here? We've been right. like, you know, hey, guess, hey, Aaron, do you know what our concerns are about the team and the things we want to improve? The same things we brought up the last three times that we haven't done anything about because you exactly. won't give us any time to fix it. And, and back to Ben's point about like, well, why isn't the team taking ownership of this stuff? Why are the leaders having to do all the action items? Well, one of the dirty secrets could be the leaders may have actually set it up so that they're the only ones who have bandwidth to do the action items. The team's mm -hmm. not going to touch that because they know that all they're doing is making their own lives harder because they're going to compromise their already overloaded sprint goals the next sprint by taking on a process improvement task. Why am I going to want to do that? You know, so so we you know we've spent a lot of time on on this podcast talking about incentives and things like that. This is this is a principled thing. Like it's like yes, you have a retrospective. 
Yes, you solicit improvement items from the team. Yes, you want them to drive those changes forward and take ownership, but are you actually providing them with the platform to do that? Are you actually creating a space, an environment where that's possible? You know what I mean? Like, I don't care how you have to do it. Maybe it's 15% of sprint time is prioritized for remediating action items from the previous retrospective. Maybe it's every third sprint, we're just going to work on retro stuff. Like, you know, some of these ideas are better than others. I don't care as long as you create that space, because otherwise the team is going to pick up very quickly that you don't actually value them taking ownership of the team and the process and improving it. And they're just going to stop caring. That's the logical thing to do as a human being in that situation is to stop investing in something, right? It's a, it's a lot of time and energy and, and personal investment too, right? Like most software developers I know, if you sit them down and you say, hey, how can we make your lives easier over the next month? Give me three things we could work on. They're going to be very forthcoming about what those three things are. And the only mistake you can make at that point is being like, thanks for that. That was a fun conversation and throw those things in the garbage can. I yes. mean, how do you think, how would that feel for you if your boss sat you down, you know, every month and was like, Aaron, we'd love to get your ideas on how to f- improve things around here. And then was just like, well, thanks. That was a fun conversation. And then just, you never, it never came up again. Right. Like, yeah. it, but I see this, this is, I sadly, like one of the most common problems I see with retros is no, what? no real follow up, no space created for actual improvement. I talked about the idea of like where process comes from and you have to think about who it's oriented towards and it's natural for process to be built. It's more normal, I would say, maybe not natural for process to come from uh, leaders at various levels of the organization, sort of like middle to to senior level people um, are developing process. Who do they develop process for? They develop process for themselves because that's who they're most aware of or their boss because that's who they're trying to keep happy. Who should process be developed for? The team, the people doing the work, they're, they're the ones that ultimately actually add value directly to whatever it is that's going on. Everybody else is just a force multiplier. And so when, when you're describing this, for me, it's, it's this, this thing that can happen in these retros is like, why did those action items get picked? Well, because the leaders are the only people that have time to do action items and they do all the ones that, value, that matter to them. And to your point, like that, that idea of, you know, what's past cynicism and resentment, it's hopelessness. And that, that again, that's disengagement, but it's hopelessness. It's, it's this, like, I'm here, I'm saying stuff. I'm trying to tell them like they were, they said they cared. They said, they said they cared. And to your point, I believed them. I believed them the first time. And maybe the second time, maybe even the third time I believed them. But at some point I just stopped believing it. I, they don't. And, it, and it's funny because actually if you were to go to those leaders and say, hey, just so you know, your team thinks you don't care about the process. They'd be like, what? That's crazy. I do retros and I, I'm constantly tr- I'm trying to facilitate and I'm doing this and I'm doing, I care so much. And, and it, yeah, but that's nice. I'm telling you, they don't, they don't know that. They don't know you care. And it's because when they brought you things as, as any leader, when you get brought something, people are like, hey, this matters to me. And, it, and I care enough about the broader space or whatever that I decided to risk bringing it to you and, w- and spend my time, hopefully not in a waste, saying we have a problem. And if you as a leader, like you said, throw that in the trash can. And you don't think you're doing that, by the way. No. You got distracted. You got busy. You had so many things you were already doing. 
it you weren't sure if that was the most important one whatever it was you said we'll deal with that later whatever it was you and and something came up where you didn't do that but the reality is they don't know any of that and the real yeah and again it, it usually takes the form of not you obviously you're not throwing it away it usually takes the form of a stack that just grows and grows and grows we're going to get to that 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 we're going to get no you're not no you're not yeah and eventually we all figure it out. We yeah. all figure out we're not going to get to that. But you know what? It's really helpful to pretend like we are if you're the leader. Um, no, no, I do care about. Look at the list. Yeah, the list. We, when was the last time we did something on the list? Yeah, no, it's, I agree. And, and again, there are lists that you are burning down. And it's just not that one. So, you, you know, you are showing through your actions what's important and what's not. And, and, and you know, we could tie that back into that idea of organizational incentives. What is that leader incentivized to do? What does it look like for him to succeed? Um, is it that he has a really high functioning team or is it that he delivered a ton of value or any of these things? And it's not that any of them are right or wrong. It's that be aware that whatever you're incentivizing is creating patterns of behavior that cascade through the organization. Um, and when I think about retro, it's funny, I, I, I described that scenario and I, I sat down with the person who was facilitating it after and I sort of said, hey, um, I don't remember the specific ones, but I'll try to I'll try to remember as best I can. Here are some things I would I want to see in a retro, and here are some flags that a retro is not going well. Um, and I'll kind of start with the flags. Um, one is um, leaders do leaders own all the action items. Closely linked to that is leaders do all the talking. Another one it seems very clear that people do not find value out of this. Um, another one for me that is potentially controversial, if you have more than like, I would say two or three action items, um, something's actually wrong. Now that, that one is, is like, take that as a guideline, not a rule for sure. Um, but a lot of times I'll see retros where people will, and I, I've actually been, I've been in retros where, People listed out, here's all the suggestions of what we should do differently. And then at the end, I was like, oh, okay, cool. So which ones are we going to tackle? And the people looked at me almost like confused. And they were like, well, well all of them. And I was like, you, you're going to, there were like, I don't know, seven or 10 things on the list. And I was like, you're going to change all of that in the next sprint. And they're like, yeah. And then they assigned it to all their leaders. And and the team, the team, by the way, was really happy with that at the time. They were like, yes, excellent. Our leaders are taking our retro items seriously. But for me, it was like, but nothing, none of those, those one, they're not going to change anything that meaningfully. Um, and it seems like we're just going through the motions. Um, so, so I kind of already mentioned this one, like that idea of engagement is the team actively engaged. Um, do they seem like, do they care about the meeting? Um, do they consider it valuable to show up? Um, and so, so those were some of the, the red flags. Too many action items were, were taken. Um, uh, only leaders were talking. Only leaders were taking action items. Most of the room was disengaged. Things I was like, if it's going well, what you should see then is sort of the opposite of those things. Um, the team actually having the bulk of the conversation. The leaders there more to ask questions and understand as opposed to provide answers and, and dictate solutions. Um, if you do that, I think something that you will start to see is the team also comfortable taking ownership of some of those action items. And it's not wrong for a leader to ever take an action item on, um, 
but it is something that like the team should be engaged with because ideally what you're looking for and what the retrospective provides is an opportunity for the team to engage with and improve the process they are stuck with every day. Um, there's always a process. And, and if the retrospective is this window for everybody to say, I, I actually get an opportunity to engage in this. You know, it's like same thing, almost like voting in, in democratic environments, right? Like I have a vote, I have a vote and it matters, except I can tell you this, um, if you're one person on a seven person team, you have a lot more say than if you're one vote in a country of hundreds of millions of people. Like you, you can really meaningfully talk with and change what, how it is that your team works. Um, and I think that that openness to learning is also something that you want to see in there where it's like, we care about this. We deeply care about this. And that, that ties into the leaders being truly engaged. Um, and I, I will say as well, if, if there is some need for one person to be recording the information, it's fine that that is the facilitator. Maybe they're the best one to be typing. If they're typing, if they are facilitating and, and they're typing, they should be doing almost entirely question asking and recording, and they should not be driving the conversation um, because it's way, it's far too much um, airtime given to one person if they are both talking about what's wrong, talking about what they're seeing, like driving the conversation and typing it because everybody has to hear them and then they have to watch them type out their notes. And it should actually be, again, if you're a leader in a retrospective, not to say you can never bring something up, you totally can, um, but a lot of how you're oriented should be towards asking questions and helping people go, well, which of these would be most valuable for us to tackle? And let's focus in and then who's going to do that? By the way, if it's truly valuable to the team and will really help them work better, they will choose to do it. They will want to help do it. Um, outside of the circumstance that Aaron described, where actually they just have like no bandwidth whatsoever. Like they're, they're, and, and then what they'll often say is like, I really want that done. I wish I could do it. I'm overloaded. I would take that on if I could. And be aware that if everybody says that, hey, you may be in a situation where you're running your team uh, too hot. Uh, from a capacity perspective. But if if they don't care, if they seem completely disengaged with the action items that are taken, probably means it does. they don't think it's going to help them very much. It doesn't matter to them. Because people don't want to work in terrible environments. They don't want to go to crappy meetings. They don't want to have to deal with inane processes that slow them down. They do because it's part of their job. But if you ask them, they can often really help you understand. And a lot of that is through, um, similar to what Aaron said about that stand up with those six engineers that were really like good. You want to walk away from an, a retrospective, you know, I don't know if every time you should set the bar at excited, but like you want to walk away saying we had some good discussion and we think this is going to be better. That's the feel you want to walk away from. We can make an improvement now. We can, we can be a better team these next two weeks than we were these last two weeks. Um, yeah. So let's go into closing thoughts um, as we, we kind of, culminate with these uh, four stories. Um, you know, again, the, the overarching idea that we're touching on here is really the, the difference between approaching a team and saying, we want to understand what we're trying to get out of agility. We want to understand how we should behave and how things should be and how we should be first 
so that the process then reflects those solid principles and that solid foundation. Whereas the mistake we see consistently that we all make and we all have made, no, like no one's exempt from this, is that we're not deliberate about the principles and the values underneath. And so we don't necessarily even have the ability to sort of unpack why things are going wrong and what's, what, what's wrong. Things just feel bad and we don't know what to do about them. We keep doing them anyway because we want to follow the process. That is really what we're trying to attack here. And I think that that is honestly, whatever you want to call it, wave two, wave three, whatever we're on. I'm sure, you know, Ken Schwaber or Alistair Coburn or one of those guys could tell me uh, of this sort of movement of agility, um, I think is about one of those, you know, more recent waves is about that transition to understanding. How do we understand how to be agile? How do we understand how to learn in the context of a retrospective? How do we understand how to prioritize that learning? How do we understand how to, as leaders, facilitate and empower as opposed to command and control? Like the, these ideological transitions are what we're, what we're actually in the midst of more than the process transitions that are often distracting us. And I, I want to bring up something that came up for us recently um, that is, it's, it's a very tempting path to attempt to take when you walk into a team, retro or stand up, and you see disengagement. And it's the path of, well, what I need to do is I need to make this entertaining. I need to switch up the format. I need to, you know, lead with a joke. I need to make it fun. I'm not saying these things can't be fun, but there is a there is a part of this that that is there's like a an approach to this that has actually taken well if what you are doing isn't working do something different that's more interesting and then people will be engaged and it's funny because it's just as unfounded principally and value wise as anything else uh, that we've talked about is bad but it looks potentially appealing because it leads like oh well now in stand up we throw a little ball around or we have some system or we play a, a sound when someone's late or we like, we, I, I look at how inter- engaged it, like people are having fun and it's, you know what, I've, teams can have a lot of fun and produce very little of worth. And that doesn't happen too much. Usually you have a bunch of miserable people not producing things of worth. Um, but, but you can absolutely do that. You can have a bunch of really happy people that seem like they're having a good time not doing much that's useful. And they've got leaders who have, who are focused on that idea of, well, are people interested? Are they happy? Does it seem like meetings are a place where it's, where fun is occurring? Yeah. One of the things that comes up for me is when you, when you talk about this is the idea of autonomy, mastery, purpose, um, mm-hmm. as those sort of three pillars of what, you know, creates engagement for people at work. Um, and fun is not on there. And I actually think that a, a team that is very fun but lacks purpose is a very brittle team. Mm-hmm. Like that, that can you, you can lose that overnight. But a team that has like very entrenched purpose, they know why they're there, they know it's valuable, and they believe in what they're doing. Uh, it's amazing how much stress a team like that can sustain. Like how resilient and how tough and how focused they are at like plowing through obstacles. 
I, and I think that that's really worth noting. What I think, Ben, what you're talking about is purpose. It's like purpose, yes. purpose is the thing that matters and that, that links to value and links to outcomes and links to success. And, yes. uh, you know, fun is great. If you can have a team that's fun in addition to all those things, fantastic. But like you cannot fix a team that doesn't have purpose or doesn't have autonomy with, you know, a, you know, a different flavor of retro to mix things up. Like that's not exactly. going to, it's not going to solve your problem. It's, it's not your, what you've done is you've gone in, you've seen something, you're like, huh, they look bored. It must be the format. Yeah. And you're right back there and doing, yeah, you're yeah. right back there and doing it. Right. Yeah. And you're saying like, well, if I, if I, let me go online and look up cool new retrospective tools and we'll do a, we're going to do a two by two grid this time. And next time we're going to ask questions and people are going to, you know, write things on sticky notes in a different way and whatever. We're going to use colors and I don't, I don't want to mock that idea in, in its totality. There is something to be said. And some, I've seen scrum masters or delivery leads or process experts or produce whatever who bring in stuff and it is really fun and engaging. There's nothing wrong with that. But if it doesn't fix that if the underlying principles through which you're viewing that meeting are not sound, no matter what format you put in front of that team, it will remain not sound. And so be careful when you go down those paths, um, because I've seen that get to like some pretty ridiculous degrees where people are like, yeah, you should be changing up the retro like every other time or every time you do it, it should be different and fresh and new. And I can tell you, I have run identical retros from a format perspective for months or years at a time with a team, and it was totally fine. The team, because the team was engaged and there was value coming out of it. I'm not saying we all walked in that meeting going like, this is gonna be the best time in the world. We're gonna have a, you know, we're gonna, we're just gonna be so entertained. No, but they got value out of it. And that mattered, Aaron, to your point about purpose so much more. Yeah, um, and one, one, I guess, I don't know, this could, could be one last parting piece of advice. Um, if you are in an environment or you're you're feeling like you see this kind of stuff, the doing stuff that's not working around you, and you feel that cynicism or you feel like the outcomes you're achieving or not achieving from the process is not where you want it to be, sit down with the other people who do what you do. Like if you're a project manager, sit down with the other, find the other leaders of those teams and talk. Spend time talking about what is working and what's not working. And again, while you're doing that, focus on the principle, like focus on the feel. Hey, like we all, we, all of us, we have three different stand-up techniques, but you know what? None of our teams are engaged. What's happening with engagement? What's wrong? Like where, where are they feeling purpose in these meetings? If not, why start identifying those problems and aligning with your peers on those problems? And you might start to realize as often happens, as you start to write those things down or track those things, that there are actually organizational incentives that are misaligned with where you want your teams to be and the outcomes you want your teams to produce. And, and, I, and, and mark my words on this, if you can start addressing those things, you're going to get way more mileage than you'll get from changing the process. Because people yes. might not even realize that those things are not aligned until somebody reflects it back to them. So reflect those things back to the organization, back to your peers, 
and get aligned around that stuff, uh, you'll be doing a great service. My my last thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pick off of what you just said because I think it, it's awesome. Um, a default place that we can go as leaders also is that when we walk into a group and we see disengagement, we can blame the team, the developers, the whoever. We say like, well, they're just not very good developers. They're not engaged. If they were more engaged, this would work better. Look, I'm not going to say that's never true. Um, I will say it's far less likely to be true than they have been in an environment where they were forced to go through with something over and over and over that they at best didn't understand and at worst actually provided them no or negative value. If you go in with a perspective that if I had better developers, this would work better, it's your, it's your perfect excuse for everything that goes wrong. Don't accept it because I can tell you it's probably not right. And if you can figure out how to make that valuable for them, the stand-up or the retro, you figure out how to help it show that it solves the problems that they care about, which is what it should be doing, you will actually discover that that group of people that you saw as disengaged and useless and you know you need better devs and all that actually can be engaging, can be part of that, and can be excited to be part of it because they get purpose and value from it. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us today, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Valarin Perspective. Send us your thoughts at perspectives at valarinconsulting.com. Valarin, V-A-L-A-R-I-N, consulting.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Valarin Inc.